starting a new series today. I want you to think about, uh, if, if you're like me and have multiple kids, think about some of the differences uh, maybe that you've noticed in, in your parenting style. Uh, so um, uh, maybe you've noticed that when it comes to milestones, you tend to parent the second kid a little different than you did the first kid when they were dealing with a milestone. Let me give you an example. Um, uh, uh, when my oldest son, Spencer, uh, learned to uh, ride his bike post training wheels, like, you know, on his own, without the help of training wheels, I did the thing where he's got, you know, helmet, elbow pads, knee pads, and I'm like running the neighborhood streets behind him. I was much younger then. Um, neighbors are out laughing, pointing, waving, cheering, laughing some more, and I'm trying to stay as close to him as I can in case he were to fall so that I could somehow catch him. And I did this day after day after day after day until he finally was comfortable on his own riding the bike. That was kid number one. Kid number two, the spare. Just kidding. Um, kid number two, I was like, I can't be taking all this time. Um, so I put a helmet on him, and I took him to one of the steeper roads in the neighborhood, and I was like, okay, Elijah, here's the deal. Uh, to brake, to slow down, you just push backwards on the pedal, right? Let me see you do it. Okay, good, good, good. Don't do it too hard going down, or you'll like flip over the handlebars, so don't do that. But that's kind of how you stop. And then at the bottom in the cul-de-sac down there, just kind of give yourself enough room for a wide turn. Four-year-olds looking at me like, all right, here we go. I gave him a you know, gentle push, and I, I you know, watched him go. And it took about three of those, and he was up and running in about 15 minutes. That's a, that's a brand of parenting I call sink or swim parenting. My, um, my book's available in, in the... <laughs> And the, that's just, you know, it just because, because road rash is a teacher of things. Like, I'm probably the last generation that learned from road rash. That's just how we learned. I, I mean, you, you learned why you don't ride your big wheel with no shoes and socks on. Like, you know, why you don't ride a big, field, big wheel bare feet. You, you learned that from road rash, and then you did it again anyway. So, um... So, so we learn that eh, maybe they don't need as much coddling the second time around. Now, I don't advocate sink or swim parenting with, like, real water. You know, I would never say just <laughs> toss your kid in and see what happens. Unless it's a clear pool when you can see the bottom and know to... I'm kidding. None of that. None of that. My point is that when it's sink or swim, um, we learn a lot about who we are. So as I talk through this series, uh, Sink or Swim, uh, things come into our life, and they reveal uh, our faith. They really show us what's below the surface. Um, and, and, and if we're ready and can properly interpret what's going on in our life and be prepared to work with God, some good things can come from that. And a lot of times what we find is that the thing that frustrates us about life or that, that, that is not going well in life actually is working to prepare us 
for something we're going to go through down the road. <clears throat> My youngest son, Elijah, plays baseball for Brunswick and um, for a team at Premier. That's his, that's his summer team. And uh, he's a shortstop third base. And so I started, uh, I really just started doing this. Um, I'd take him hitting all the time there at his facility, but I started to try to hit him ground balls um, a couple times a week for half an hour at a time. It's called fungo when you hit balls to a player and they, they um, get the reps of, of fielding. And, and for the first like three weeks, I was absolutely terrible hitting to him Everything was either a line drive over his head or would line drive in one hop right before him and like shoot up at him. So he's getting fairly frustrated that everything's either over his head, but especially these one hoppers, which are borderline dangerous. And, and what I'm unable to do is just produce a ground ball. Um, so he's frustrated. He's trying to keep his cool and not like be all disrespectful and stuff. Um, and, and then finally, you know, after a few weeks of, of this terrible fungo, uh, he ends up in an open field at the high school um, for um, his high school team. And the Brunswick High School field is uh, notoriously, uh, it gives a lot of bad hops. It's not a very good infield for, for um, you know, pure ground balls. And he said, Dad, he got in the car, he's like, Dad. I looked like I had the most incredible hands out there because of your terrible fungo. It would hop up at me and I was like, I was all over the place. I looked amazing. So I'm really glad that you're awful at fungo. <clears throat> and I did what any dad would do. Well, you know, son, I knew that the field was notoriously uh, awful and so I decided that what you really needed were a lot of one hoppers. Um, but fortunately for him, my awful ability to hit ground balls ended up preparing him uh, for something a little bit better. Now, totally unintentional on my part, but that's the way life works. So, when your faith gets tested, will you sink or swim? Week one today, the title is for today's sermon, and you will be tested. I want to give you a sort of theology of hard times. I think it's important um, that we have a mental framework for difficult seasons of life, and that can help us then think correctly about what's going on. So um, let's start with Jesus. If we want to get a proper theology or philosophy of life when it comes to hard times, let's start with Jesus. He's the example for us to follow. If you say you're a Christian, it means you follow Jesus. So we're going to look to him first to understand the world for our worldview. Now, um, this is a one sentence that he spoke to his disciples. It was his last night with him before he was arrested and beaten and crucified. So if you're wondering if life is going to be peachy keen all the time, you look at the example who was arrested and beaten and crucified, completely innocent, um, you think, well, maybe this, maybe this isn't, you know, a walk through the rose garden. Uh, but here's what he told them that life would be like when he was gone physically from their life. This is John 16. He says, and this is pretty straightforward, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. 
matter of fact. Is this life going to be great all the time because we're obedient to Jesus? No, because Jesus says in this life, you will have trouble. Okay, so uh, maybe Jesus was just talking to his closest disciples there. Maybe he was just talking to the 12. Let's see if he repeats this other places. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus is talking to a huge crowd of Galileans. He said, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, Jesus advocates not worrying about anything ever, which is way easier said than done. But what he does tell us is we should plan on each day having plenty of trouble. So, Following Jesus is not a recipe for the good life. It's not a recipe to um, avoid bad things because you're honoring God. Jesus says each day will have trouble. <clears throat> now, this is one that I want you to look at, me, uh, look at with me. If you could grab a Bible nearby and row in front of you or under your chair if you're sitting in the front row and turn to page 972. This is Matthew 7, 972. Um, I, I, we teach about this all the time at Polaris. This is a really important passage for a lot of reasons. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of um, what is the significance or meaning of um, trials in life. Okay? Okay. Verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these, this is Jesus talking, everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, here's what I want you to see. There are two groups of people described by Jesus. One group takes his word seriously. They put their trust in his word. They put their trust in his teachings. And they actually do what Jesus taught. Another group is apathetic, flippant, disobedient, rebellious, whatever you want to call it. They don't incorporate the teachings of Jesus. What do they both have in common? They both go through storms. Tornadic storms, floods, significant enough to tear the house down apart from a well-built foundation. They both go through massive storms. That's one of the promises there. Doesn't matter which group you identify with. Doesn't matter whether you follow Jesus or not. You will go through life 
earth-shaking storms if you follow Jesus or not. It is simply a part of life. Now, Jesus promises that we're going to be more equipped to manage those storms if we put his teachings into practice. But let there be no doubt. He did not come to offer a life free of problems or free of pain or free of suffering or free of bad things and bad circumstances. He says, both, any, all will have tornadic storms capable of ripping your life apart. Follow him or not. Side note. We don't have to like it when bad things happen. We just have to expect that they will happen. There's a, there's a concerning thing that, you know, I hear about every now and then, um, <clears throat> and I know the motive's pure. I, I know the motive's pure. At some point, um, I don't want to say it like that. Some people feel like it's somehow more spiritual to project contentment and peace no matter the circumstance. Something really, really awful, really, really sad happens, the loss of a loved one, and it's kind of conveyed, I'm not sad, they're in a better place. Okay, in the scriptures, this is just a little tangent, in the scriptures, there is the full range of emotion. Life brings storms, and it is okay to feel deeply from those storms and to grieve and get frustrated like anybody else. I want to give you an example in Philippians here. Paul says this. He's talking about a friend of Epaphroditus who almost died. He was sick, but he recovered. God had mercy on him, and not only on him, not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Now, what he didn't say is, God spared his life, but if he had died, I'd have been fine because I know he's in a better place. Like, sometimes that's presented as a more spiritual, more mature way of looking at things. But Paul's like, I would have been a wreck if he died. And so what I want you to know is that, that part of, a, a part of embracing a storm, even as a follower of Jesus, is to feel what you feel and acknowledge that. There is nothing hyper-spiritual about pretending to not be deeply grieved because you know they're in a better place. You can grieve and have faith that they're in a better place. This past week, uh, I did the funeral for a longtime Polaris guy, Bill Bland. He's been part of Polaris for 20 years. Um, tragically lost his battle with cancer, 50 years old. His daughter was there in the crowd. His family was there in the crowd. His friends was there. In the it was really, really sad. Now, Bill lived a very difficult life with a lot of storms and maintained his faith till the very end, unlike maybe anyone I've ever seen. Like, he believed, and no matter what came his way, he was believing anyway that God was good and that his... Life here would be rewarded. But it was really, really sad. And so, in our theology of storms and our philosophy of storms, what I want you to know is that 
Uh, one, they're going to happen, and two, it, it's okay to feel the, the spectrum of emotion, and, and I think it's, it's unhealthy. Um, it's an unhealthy Christian practice to somehow minimize um, under the guise of hope what you're really feeling deep down. I think those emotions are an important part of being human. Okay, enough about that. <clears throat> I want to talk about our, our modern, western, Judeo-Christian mindset. And this is really important. I would that, like, if you hear anything, tune in for these next five minutes. Um, our modern Western capitalism focus, nothing wrong with capitalism. Yay, capitalism, as Austin Powers said. Um, but it's dangerous. The word is transactional. We are a transactional society, this for that. You pay this, you get that. That's what America is built on. Um, it's dangerous when it comes to faith. It's dangerous to start applying that to faith uh, because, because when, and, and it's everywhere. <clears throat> it's in, it, I'm teaching this and I still struggle with it. This for that, uh, Stephen Covey's um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People was like the standard for just business growth. And, and it's transactional. Think win-win. That was his, one of his seven habits. That's transactional. This for that. Everybody benefits. Um, <clears throat> the danger of transactional thinking when it comes to God is we can't help but look at our life circumstances and feel like somehow they are a payment. They are a payment for bad deeds. They are a payment for good deeds. This is what leads us to ask, why? Why did that happen to her? How could God have let that happen to him? See the transactional thinking in there? It implies that our life circumstances reflect what we've paid or what we've done for God. You could say that a big part of um, Jesus' ministry, if you really look at his teachings and the parables and things, was to try to speak out against this transactional, this for that, fairness approach to God because that's just not how it works. I mean, if you look at the language, can we go back to um, Matthew 7 real quick? The, the, the storms. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Notice this. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. Okay, next one, please. 27, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. <laughs> Notice the way Jesus is very careful to use the same language to describe the life storms for those who were obedient to his word 
in those who rejected or were apathetic toward his word. And, and what I want you to see here, and, and just it's, it's um, I know I, I, I harp on this a lot because we still all are tempted to say, why did this happen? How could this happen? What have I done wrong? Jesus, it just doesn't work like that. It's not transactional. Um, it's not to say it's never you get what you deserve, but generally speaking, it, you can't look at your life. The language is the same. They both lost the job. They both got the cancer diagnosis. Their grown children both went astray. Both their dads got dementia. They both had storms that shook them to the very core. And what I desperately want you to see and understand, and I'm telling you that, I, I mean, I'm passionate about this, and it's still so baked within the human DNA that I will, I will invent stuff that, that could happen to me or my family, and then ask, what did I do wrong? Okay, stuff that I made up, and I'm asking transactional questions, even though I know it so well, I can teach the lesson about it. This is hard for us. But I'm telling you, you can't evaluate your life circumstances. You can't evaluate your standing with God based on your life circumstances. That's transactional thinking. And it's just not how it works. Okay. Um, so what? So what? There's going to be storms. That's not good news. It's not all that surprising. So what? I want to, I want to talk about one quick approach, and then, we'll, and then we'll close here. Here's my approach, and I'm going to say it again. I'm a hypocrite standing up here because I'm going to tell you what I like to do and what I try to do, but it sure isn't what I'm always going to do. Okay, so do what I don't do. <laughs> um, look at Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things. Now, that doesn't say that God causes all things. That doesn't say that everything happens for a reason. It says that no matter what does happen in your life, God can use it for good if you let him. If you let him, in all things, God can and will work for good. So, so it's, a, it's a mindset thing. It's, it's, it's an approach to, okay, this storm has come into my life. It does not mean that I've done anything wrong. It might. Maybe you should look at your life. and, But it does not necessarily mean I'm not going to look for why. I'm not going to look for why this bad thing happened. I'm going to ask, how can God use this for good in my life and in the lives of other people? And I'm going to join him in that. It changes your mindset. Now, I love, um, let me, one more here. This is how James takes it a step further. James 1 takes it a step further. He says, consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So James says, get your mind right. It's how you frame it. 
It's how you frame it. You don't have to like the circumstance that you're in necessarily. It might be really sad, but you can take some joy in it because you know if it's hard, God is going to use it to make you and other people better. So he says, get your mind right. Now, I want to talk about one thing real quick, and I'm going to close with this. Um, Band, you can come on up. Um, I, I love these moments in Scripture when modern psychology counseling kind of catches up to what was given to us in God's Word 2,000 years ago. So this comes from Anna Konnikova, not Anna Kornikova. I think that's different. Anna Konnikova, she wrote an article in the New Yorker about resilience and learning from adversity. And so she quotes this modern study. Uh, George Bonanno, a clinical psychologist at Columbia University, he, 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 um, at Columbia University's Teachers College, says that um, one of the central elements of resilience is perception. Do you conceptualize an event as traumatic or as an opportunity to learn to grow? Bonanno came up with the term potentially traumatic event because he believes every uh, frightening event has the potential to be traumatic or not to the person experiencing it. And then Konnikova goes on to basically say uh, what, what what um, psychologists are realizing, what scientists are realizing, is that a lot of it has to do with how we frame it up. If we frame the tragedy up as just the end of the world, it might be. But if we frame it up in a way that says, how, is, how am I going to get better through this? God can actually use it. Now, they don't say that in the counseling thing, but that James said 2,000 years ago, what modern psychology is realizing that when we frame up adversity, rather than ask why, we ask how can God use it, good things can come from that. All right, I've said enough for today. I hope it gives you something to think about. We standing or we sitting? Standing. Let's stand and we'll close. Um, Father, Jesus taught us how to build a foundation. He also taught us that we're going to have storms, and it's not a reflection of your love. So I pray that you would give us solid focus around the kind of foundation we're building in preparation for those storms. But in the moment of those storms, I pray that rather than ask why, we would ask how could you use it, and that we would become um, especially aware of your love and your plan for our life in those storms. Thank you for the hope of your involvement in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.